0: Jonah chapter four verses one to four has been our text uh, last Sunday, and we're going to spend just a, a little bit more time there this morning before we move on. Jonah four verses one to four. Can you uh, say this with me? Heart storms. Heart storms, we've been looking at the incredible breakdown and collapse, you might call it a meltdown of Jonah, Uh, last Sunday and again this morning. Look at this with me, the first four verses of Jonah chapter 4, but what God did was so terrible to Jonah that he burned with anger. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. He uses the name Yahweh. That, that name of the Lord has not been used since chapter 2. He uses it again here. O Lord, this, is this not what I spoke of when I was still in my homeland? That is why I fled with haste to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Very patient and abounding in steadfast love. Notice this description of who God is. And embrace it. You are gracious and compassionate God. Very patient and abounding in steadfast love. And who also renounces plans. For bringing disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, Jonah says. For to me, death is better than life. And the Lord God said in response, Is it good for you to burn with such anger, Jonah? So last Sunday, we were looking at the theological problem that Jonah was wrestling with, that Jonah was having. However, it's not the end of the story there. This truth, this theological struggle that he was having is not an absolute end in and of itself. There's something deeper going on here with Jonah. We are about, here, about more than just merely theological problem solving. We want to do more than that as we dig into the Word and into this story. As important as it is to have good, rigorous, and robust, life-giving theology. And it is important. But our purpose, as we spend time together in this story is not theological problem-solving. King Jesus desires to go deeper than that with us in this story. He desires to engage our hearts, which is usually the heart of the problem. As Isaiah puts it in 29 verse 13, of His message. A good theology saves no one. The wandering heart that is far and away from being in Messiah must be dealt with. And this was the root of the matter for Jonah. Jonah had a heart problem. Jonah's great anger shows us that he was not merely perplexed by a theological conundrum. It was more than that going on with him. There was a heart problem. Let's look at that for a moment. When Jonah says he wants to die, verse 3 of our text, and God with remarkable gentleness chastises him for his inordinate anger asking "Jonah have you any right to be angry here?" I mean really? And we see that Jonah's real problem was at the deepest level of his heart perhaps we could say that all theological problems really play themselves out not merely in our intellects, but in our commitments, in our attitudes, in our values, in our priorities, in our desires and dispositions, and our identities. That is in our hearts. Because all of those things have to do with our heart. When Jonah says, in effect, without that, I have no desire to go on, he means that he has lost something that had replaced God as his primary joy and purpose and reason and love of his life. He has a relationship with God, but there's something else that Jonah valued more. And his explosive anger here that we are witnessing shows us that he is willing to discard his relationship with God if he does not get this thing his way. You see, beloved, when we say to God, when you say to God and I say to God, I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me X. Whatever X may be. When we say that to God in our hearts, then X is our true bottom line. Our highest love. Our real God. The thing you most trust and rest in. X can be anything. A certain possession. A relationship. A certain outcome. You fill in the blank. X can be anything. And when we say, God, I won't serve you if you don't give me X... then that is our true bottom line. Here, Jonah is saying to God, you, he's saying to God, who should be the only real source of meaning in his life, he's saying to him, I have no source of meaning now, God. You've taken it from me. What was it for Jonah? Jonah. Nineveh's repentance was pleasing to God. But, it was threatening to Israel's national interests as far as Jonah was concerned. The will of God and the political fortunes of Israel seemed to be diverging. One would have to be Chosen And Jonah leaves no doubt as to which of those two concerns was more important to him and which one he would choose. Of course, anyone who cared for his own country would have been anxious about Assyria's survival as we've looked at last week and in previous times studying this story. Assyria, as we've noted, was a terrorist state. Jonah, however, did not turn to God with his anxiety, trusting in him as so many of the psalm writers had done. Jonah doesn't do that. If he had to choose between the national security of his homeland of Israel and loyalty to God, well, he was ready to push God away. Beloved, that is not just concern and love for one's country. And we should have concern and love for our country, our homeland, whether that be here in Canada or wherever your homeland would be prior to your time of making now Canada your home. We should obviously have love and care and concern for our country. But for Jonah, that's not just what was going on here. He had more than just concern and love for one's country. He had deified his country. He had made it God. And that's nothing other than idolatry. Now, perhaps some of you are saying, well, come on, Pastor. Don't be too hard on Jonah. Don't criticize him. Jonah was a good patriot. And I'm there. We should all be patriotic. But loved ones, while love of country and your people is a good thing, It is a good thing in and of itself. And God knows, as Canadians, we could certainly afford to be more expressly patriotic than we are. But even so, like any other love in our lives, it can become inordinate, out of place, if love for your country's interests leads you to exploit people, or in this case, to push an entire class of people to be spiritually lost and destroyed, then you love your nation more than God. That's what we see going on in Jonah's heart here. And that is idolatry by any definition. As a prophet of the Lord on mission for the Lord, Jonah should have been glad that the Ninevites had taken a first step in response to God. Coming to full and complete faith in God, how many know doesn't usually happen overnight. His grace is a process in our lives as He pursues us, yeah? How many know that? You don't just wake up one morning and you are radically following Jesus. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. The Ninevites had taken a first step. You may say, yeah, well, it was just social reform. It wasn't true repentance. Well, it seemed to be enough for God. It was a first step. But Jonah was wrestling with this. The people of the city of Nineveh showed their willingness to repent And Jonah should have been prepared to help them continue in that journey by making disciples, teaching them the character of this new God, the Lord, and what it means to now be in covenant relationship with Him. What does that look like in our lives? How are we to be growing in this? But instead, Jonah was furious that they had even begun to move toward God and respond to Him. Rather than going back into the city to teach and preach, he stayed outside the city in hopes that maybe god would still judge it loved ones please please hear this when we as christ followers people of messiah care more for our own interests and personal preferences and security then we care for the good and salvation of other people other cultural groups other ethnicities other people groups other generations those people that we consider different from ourselves when we care more for our own interests and preferences and security than we do for these ones, we are sinning like Jonah. We are not being the people of God we are called to be. We are not being His church. If we value as we're seeing a lot of today. If we value the National Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the economic and military flourishing of our country over the image of God in our fellow humankind, because we live next door to someone who has the image of God on their lives. You realize that, don't you? Yeah, but they don't don't know Jesus. They're heathens. It doesn't matter. They were created in God's image. They are image bearers of God, whether they realize it or not, or whether we see any fruitful evidence of it or not. It has been disfigured and marred and broken, yes, as it has been in all of us, but they still bear the image of God upon them. And if we value things like our charter of rights and freedoms and the economy and the military flourishing of our country, over that image in our fellow humankind, and the furtherance of God's work and His kingdom in their lives and in the world, we are sinning like Jonah. Our identity and sense of significance is thereby more rooted, if this is our posture... Our identity and our sense of significance is more rooted in our rights, in our ethnicity, in our nationality, than in being saved sinners. New creation children of God. Citizens of His kingdom. People of the Holy Spirit. People of God. Our identity as Christ followers is in Christ. Nothing else and no one else. And so that identity ought to be our driver in how we live and the attitudes we keep and the outlook we have and our worldview as we looked at last week. Jonah's rightful love for his country and people and for himself had become excessively inordinate, too great. It was rivaling God. Rightful and appropriate racial pride had become for him racism. rightful and appropriate national pride and patriotism had become for Jonah nationalism and imperialism. And human history has shown this to be true again and again and again. Let's consider for a moment The misuse of the Bible. Will you do that with me? When Jonah begins to berate God here in our passage, notice that he quotes God's own words to him. They're taken from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God reveals himself to Moses, if you remember that story. And says to Moses, he is compassionate and gracious. And that he forgives wickedness. Jonah here sets God against God. Or he attempts to. And he does it all to justify himself. He reads the Bible... Selectively. Uh oh. He reads the Bible selectively, ignoring the latter part of Exodus 34, verse 7, that speaks of God not leaving the guilty. Unpunished. He creates a simplistic picture of a God who simply loves everyone without also judgment on evil. He uses the sacred text to justify his inordinate indignation and anger and resentment and bitterness. Beloved, what we see Jonah doing here is a great danger for religious people, for us, even the most devout Christians. It is possible to use the Bible selectively to justify oneself. A couple of examples may be those who dissect Scripture to set it against Scripture in a way that undermines the Bible's authority so that we don't have to obey it. Or those who misinterpret or rip off certain select proof texts to fashion a case... For an angry, vengeful God who always causes or at least does not prevent bad things from happening to people. Or further, those who do the same to create worldviews that are not at all congruent and aligned and that resonate with the greater narrative of the Scripture story of God, humankind, and all creation. We see this happening all the time amongst the so-called people of God, particularly here in North America. And often they're standing on corners picketing and placarding these things. Let me, if you will, go further still Another is the Christian who opens their Bible to simply find themselves justified against those who are not following Christ, or Christ followers who do not hold the same views or beliefs or perspectives. Arguments which show how far superior my position is to that of others. Boy, haven't we seen a lot of that? especially in these last couple of years. Whenever we read the Bible in order to say, Aha! I'm right. And you're wrong. Whenever we read it to validate ourselves, to validate our own arrogant opinions, To feel righteous and wise and superior in our own eyes. We are using the Bible to make ourselves fools or worse. After all, the Bible does say that the mark of evil fools is what? To be wise in their own eyes. In other words, if we feel more righteous because we read the Bible, we are misreading it. We are missing its central message. We are misusing it. We are reading and studying the Bible rightly only when it, by the Holy Spirit, humbles us critiques and convicts us, pierces and penetrates our soul, discerns the thoughts and intents of our hearts, and encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. Because we not only read the Bible, but the Word of God reads us. Yeah? What the Bible teaches us about ourselves is all to the effect that we are not righteous in and of ourselves, that we have no means of justifying ourselves, that we have no right to condemn others and be in the right against them. And that only a gracious act of God can save us. Hello? That is what Scripture teaches us. And if we stick to this, reading the Bible is penetratingly useful. And healthy, and life-giving, and liberating, and transformational, bringing forth the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of righteousness in us. Furthermore, please listen and hear this. As Christ followers, we worship Christ the King. Let me say that again. As Christ followers, we worship Christ the King, not the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship Christ the King. The Bible is the inspired witness to the true and living Word of God who is who. Christ, Jesus, Messiah. In the beginning was the Word, John says. He takes us back to Genesis 1. The Bible didn't exist in Genesis 1. Oh, well, then God's Word didn't exist then. No, God's Word was well in. In the beginning was the Word, John says. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We worship Christ, the living Word. We don't worship the Bible. The Bible is the inspired witness to the true and living Word who is Christ Jesus Messiah. What the Bible does infallibly and authoritatively is take us on a journey that culminates with Christ. But it is Christ who fully reveals God. Or we could say it this way. The Scriptures ultimately bear witness to Christ. And Christ perfectly bears witness to God. While we are studying the Bible to find out what God is like, and so we should, the Bible and the Holy Spirit are all the while resolutely and respectively pointing us to the illuminating Christ Jesus. The full revelation of God, how many know this? The full revelation of God could never be contained in a book. Hello? If that's your God, He's far too small. But how many know the full revelation of God? Could be contained in a human life. The human life of Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in Colossians, in Christ we behold the fullness of God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Christ Jesus. Dear ones, if we use the Bible to puff up our own egos with our correctness and our righteousness and to denounce all others, then studying the Scripture becomes a source of death and Satan's work, not God's. In fact... The other example we have of anyone quoting and twisting and distorting the Bible to resist God is when Satan himself does it against Jesus. The Word become flesh in the wilderness, doesn't he? Matthew 4. The temptations of Christ. Satan uses the Word of the Scriptures and twists them and distorts them and misuses them in tempting Christ. Isn't that interesting? Indeed, Jonah's use, or his misuse, or his abuse of the Bible is not bringing him joy, but rather it's taking him to the brink of despair. And so he asks God to take his own life. The misuse of the Bible. Now, one reflect with me on one last aspect this morning. The problem of self-righteousness. In hindsight... There was a clue given to us of Jonah's future meltdown with his prayer that took place in the great fish that swallowed him. Jonah had fled in the first place because he thought God was going to be merciful to Israel's enemies and therefore, in his own view, God was going to be unjust. And then in chapter 2, Jonah was confronted with the reality that he himself needed mercy and had no hope if God was completely fair with him and gave him only what he deserved, just as Jonah was expecting God to do with the Ninevites, give them what they only deserved. So, in the belly of the fish, Jonah received a deeper understanding of his own need of grace. However, at the very end of his prayer in the great fish, he says these words. Chapter 2, verse 8. He says, those who cling to idols forfeit God's love. And while this statement in itself is true, this is really Jonah's own self righteous ego speaking here. He speaks the truth, but it's his ego that's speaking it. Jonah had seen some of his own need for grace, but there was still some pride left. As there is for so many of us. As there is for me. Pagans have idols, but not him. Pagans have idols. I don't have idols. Pagans have idols. Not Jonah. Yes, of course, he needed mercy. But surely he wasn't on the same level as these pagan Ninevites. Surely he still had some spiritual merit, some superiority. He still had some claims on God. The social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, concludes from his research... That self-righteousness is the normal human condition. Isn't that interesting? This aligns very much and fits in with what the Bible teaches us about the inevitable human desire to justify and validate oneself through one's performance and effort And therefore, to boast in one's righteousness, and ethnicity, and nationality, and pedigree, or accomplishments. Look at Jeremiah 9. Romans chapter 3, for example. For Jonah, his self-righteousness and mindset of entitlement had been diminished somewhat in the belly of the great fish, but not destroyed completely. He cried, Salvation comes only from the Lord. Yet also, in effect, but I'm not like those awful pagans. And, and, That is why he was still susceptible to the spiritual breakdown and meltdown and crash and burn heart storm that we are seeing here, that is occurring with him after God shows Nineveh mercy. He still felt, to some degree, that mercy had to be earned. Mercy had to be deserved. Deserved. And they, those filthy Ninevites, certainly hadn't earned it. And they definitely didn't deserve it. We learn from Jonah that understanding God's grace and being changed by God's grace always requires a process. A long, obedient, patient journey with successive stages. It it cannot happen in a single cathartic or catastrophic experience like being swallowed by a fish, for instance. That one instance cannot bring a full understanding of God's grace. For Jonah, it didn't, nor will it for us. We're on a journey, a journey of grace. All is grace, understanding God's grace. Every time it seemed he had taken God and his grace to the very bottom, it turned out for Jonah that he needed to go deeper. What does it mean to get to that bedrock in one's heart? If you say, I'll obey you, Lord, if you give me that, or you do this, then that is the non-negotiable. And God is nothing more than just a means to an end. you tracking with me? That, whatever it is, is the real bedrock from our perspective. It is more foundational to us and our happiness than God is. If you do this, God, if you give me this, then. And God becomes nothing more than someone we use. Beloved, as long as there is something more important than God in my heart, in your heart, you and I will be like Jonah both fragile in our egos and self-righteous. Whatever it is, it will create pride. It it, it, It will create an inclination to look down upon those who do not have it, whatever it is. It will also create fear and insecurity. It's the basis for your happiness. So therefore, if anything threatens it, you will be overwhelmed with anger and anxiety and despair. To reach heart bedrock with God's grace is to recognize all the ways that we make good things in and of themselves, good things, but we make them into idols that we bow down to and worship in ways of saving ourselves. It is to instead finally recognize that we live wholly and completely and entirely by God's grace alone. Every breath I breathe is grace. Every step I take is grace. Grace is all around me. All is grace. living wholly by God's grace alone. Grace plus nothing. Grace plus nothing. Then we begin serving the Lord, not in order to have it our way or to get things from Him, but we serve Him just for Him alone. For His own sake, just for who He is, for the joy of knowing Him, delighting in Him, loving Him, being loved by Him, becoming like Him, incarnating Him, the invitation of God's grace is to the endless adventure of searching out the mystery of Christ and exploring and growing in the fullness of Christ. And it doesn't happen in an instance. It's the journey of a lifetime that we are invited to with Him. When we've reached the bedrock of heart with God's grace, it with His perfect love begins to drain us slowly but surely, draining us of both self-righteousness and fear. And concurrently with that, in the Holy Spirit, we are filled with the fullness of Christ. Jonah's death wish is greeted by God with almost complete silence. God quietly and gently rebukes Jonah, and he does it with the briefest question, just three words actually in the Hebrew language, more words in our English translation, but just three words in the Hebrew language, the briefest question, Jonah, is it good for you to burn with such anger? Anger is not wrong in and of itself. If you love something, and it's threatened or harmed or endangered, anger would be the proper, appropriate response. But such anger. Such anger. Inordinate anger. Gratuitous anger. Self-righteous anger. Fear-filled anger. That is a sign that the thing that Jonah loves is a counterfeit God. He is inordinately committed to his culture and his ethnicity and his nation above God. And God will not have it. So it is we see Jonah's meltdown, his heart storm, his collapse, his breakdown. God will have to deal with Jonah's idolatry if Jonah is ever to get the infinite peace of resting in God's grace alone, the place that we are all meant to live. Heartstorms. Perhaps you're in one too right now. Your image of God is being challenged. It is an image of your own creation. A golden calf God that you fashioned yourself from the offerings of your own emotional and religious and self-righteous and egocentric jewelry. It has its footings in unsound theology, in a low and in a small vision of God. And God, perhaps even in these days that we have been walking through, is seeking to dismantle that image. To deconstruct it. To demolish your illusions of Him. In order to transform you by His Spirit. In the renewal of your mind. Changing the way you think about Him. About His grace. About His nature. About His ways. God, in this way, is always passionately pursuing us. We don't find him. He finds us. That's the good news. Our ego would like to declare we found him. But he finds us. His love is relentless, he will not be stopped. He is determined, loved ones. He is determined to have us completely, that we might know him truly, that we might grow into him fully, that we might show him to the world rightly. The good, compassionate, merciful, human, befriending, and just God that he is. Amen.